you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to go to Colossians chapter 2. And if you're new to Greenhouse, my name is Mike Patz. I'm one of the pastors around here, and it's just like a great family reunion today. If you're here from another faith or another background, it's such an honor for us to be with you today. Next week, we're going to start a, a series that's about relationships called Breaking Bread. In fact, there's a QR code that's on the screen. If you want to get those, you can even put that on your on your social media platforms if you wanted because it's just a green tile. Every week in this Breaking Bread series, we're going to be eating bread from different countries. Next week is going to be some pan sobao from Puerto Rico, some Puerto Rican bread. So uh, some other weeks, we're going to have um, some different breads from some different countries and different nationalities, and it's going to be a really good time. I do believe today's the greatest day of the year, and I'm going to tell you why. I've been thinking about crosses, and you saw some of those if you're here in person. You saw some of those when you drove in today. I was at the gym a few weeks ago, and there was a guy with very big shoulders that had a very big cross on his shoulders in ink. He had gotten a tattoo of, of a cross, to which I walked up to him. I'm like, hey, that's an interesting cross that you've got there. And he says, yeah, I know. I said, well, how did you, how, what's the meaning of this? How did you choose this? And he said, well, I don't know. I just thought it was very cool. And I th- thought to myself, I said, what an interesting thing to think is cool. A cross, of course, if you're not familiar, a cross is an execution stake. It was a means of capital punishment in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. It was the, the way that somebody would be killed. Now, of course, crosses in history, they were invented by, the crucifixion was invented by Persians, perfected by the Romans, and it was a means of curtailing crime and of killing criminals, but it was more than that because it was via the cross that the Roman Empire would flex its muscles, intimidate the masses, and let everybody know that we are in charge. The cross was the icon and the symbol of the power differential that Rome possessed over all of the rest of the known world, and this was the way in which people would watch a human being made in the image of God, nailed to a dirty cross on a cosmopolitan public road where everybody would walk by and everybody would see it. In fact, it wasn't just allowed, it was encouraged that the masses themselves would be a part of the blood sport itself. This was part horror show, part uh, justice system, part legal system. This was a way where the accusation made against a criminal was put on a little title deal right above their head that would bring their accusation where a human being was snuffed out with their worst crimes and accusations defining them in that moment. The question I had for the guy in the gym was, how did the symbol of death, despair, destruction, fear, torment, and shame become the symbol of peace and hope and love and joy. Talking to a woman that was in the valley of the shadow of death and despair and depression and was talking about driving down the street in a very, very bad place, and then I saw up on a hill a cross, and when I saw the cross... I felt that hope in my heart. How did the symbol of death and despair become the symbol of hope and life in people's hearts? One of Jesus' earliest followers, a followers, a guy that was Saul who became Paul of Tarsus, he wrote in Galatians chapter 6, in verse 11, he says, look with what large letters I write this, because he had a scribe that was helping him write the letter to the Galatians, to an epistle. It was a letter that he wrote to them. But he says, look with, in other words, scribe, give me the pen. I'm writing this myself. And in verse 14, he says, I will boast in nothing 
but the cross of Jesus Christ. I will boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus. How did the symbol of death and despair become the symbol of hope and joy and peace and salvation in a way that a learned man like Saul of Tarsus would say, I boast not in my accomplishments. I do not boast in my, my looks. I do not boast in my pedigree. I do not boast in my education. I do not boast in my finances. I do not boast in my ethnicity. I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus. How did that happen? That's what I want to talk about today. That's what I want to answer today from the book of Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to sum it all up with one statement that I'm going to say again and again, and it is simply this. How did the cross become that? Because everything Jesus gets his hands on comes alive. When Jesus gets his hands on a marriage, that marriage comes alive. When Jesus gets his hands on a child, that child comes alive. When Jesus gets his hands on an education, that education comes alive. Everything Jesus gets his hands on, it just comes alive. It's like he breathes the breath of life into it, and I want to explain how. So in Colossians chapter 2 is where we are. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. But in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, and may God add his blessing to the reading of this word. In verse 9 it says, For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Christ was the title that meant Messiah, which was the title for Jesus. His name was Jesus or Yeshua. His sort of a version of the word, the word Joshua, like we would say. Christ was a title for a Messiah. The first thing I need you to understand today is, is that Jesus was the one that was up on the cross. Jesus goes up on a cross on Good Friday and when Jesus went up on the cross, the reason why the cross became something else is because this was God. Now, it's going to take me a minute to explain what I, what I mean by this because I'm about to make the claim that what we just read in Colossians 2 verse 9, when it says, in him all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, that is making the claim that Jesus was a teacher, but he was more. That Jesus was a good man, but he was more. That Jesus was a prophet, but he was more. That Jesus was a healer, but he was more. That Jesus was a man of wisdom, but he was more. Jesus actually was and is God. Now, I want to get clear because I, I need to make something super clear because this is so difficult to grasp because the, the cry of the ages, which I agree with completely, is that God is great. And God forbid that we lower the view of God. I want you to understand what I'm not saying right now is I'm not saying that we lower the view of what God or who God is. And even to be clear, in case you're wondering from, I don't know what kind of a background you come from, the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of Christianity, the teaching of Jesus, there is only one God. There are not three gods, there are not seven gods, there are not nine gods. There is but one God and he is great. God Almighty, that Jesus on the cross, this was God showing up. The reason this cross was different than all the other crosses, and it had been done thousands of times in the Roman Empire. The reason this cross was different was because the one that got on this cross was different. The reason this cross flipped everything is because the one that got up there was God. Now, let me try to make my case for this. I was recently just doing some writing, and I was uh, in a yard, and I heard a little bird, and the bird was stuck. I was trying to help the bird. I felt bad for the little bird. He was chirping, chirp, chirp. 
I said, hey, little bird. He said, chirp, chirp. I think I understood what he said. I think he said, you look very cool. I said, thank you. Chirp, chirp. We just kind of had a little conversation going, but I could see he was stuck. So I said, little birdie, you need to move to the left and then move to the right, and then you'll be free. The more I tried to talk to him, the less he listened. The closer I got to him, the more he pulled back. I ended up truly having a thought, which was, don't you understand? I'm just trying to set you free. But he would not listen to me, and he pulled away from me. And so I looked at him again. I'm like, little birdie, I'm, I'm trying. The problem was, he doesn't speak human, and I don't speak tweet. <laughs> Some of you would be better off if you would just stop tweeting as well, by the way. <laughs> Your life would have a lot more peace, maybe, right? But here it is. He, I, I'm, I'm, and I think to myself, if only I could speak bird. And that's when it hit me. We could not speak divine, so divine came and spoke human. See, we are humans, and because we're humans, we're limited, limitado. We, we, are, we have a limitation upon us because we're humans. Humans in limitation cannot reach God, but God is sovereign, and God is almighty, and God is all-powerful, and God is all-knowing, and God can do anything, which means God can become a human. And what Jesus did was that Jesus is when God became human, when, when, the, when God became flesh and dwelt among us, never sinned, never sinned. Just so you're clear, born of a virgin, this is, this was not, he is not the, the son of Joseph. This is, that's not what happens here. This is an absolute miracle. This was God. When Jesus got on the cross, I need to announce to you, this was no mere man. Every other crucified victim until that moment had been guilty of some sin. This was the only sinless human ever, ever, ever. And he goes up on a cross that he did not deserve where he paid for the sins of humanity. This was the creator. This was the blessed forever. This was the great I am. This was the sovereign. This was the king of kings. This was the Lord of lords. This was the one in whom the universe is held together by the power of his word. That is who Jesus is. Amen. Jesucristo es Dios, Salvador, Redentor, Señor de señores. Amen. <laughs> Number one, why did, why, how did this go from the symbol and icon of despair and death to the symbol of hope and life? Answer, because the one that got on it was God. And everything you put in the hands of Jesus comes, comes alive. Number two, what was he doing on this cross? We see this as we read in verse 13. It says, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Past tense. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Let me make this clear. The scripture declares that the wages of sin is death. The scriptures declare that just like Switzerland has a set of laws, just like Mozambique has a set of laws, just like the United States of America has a set of laws, just like your family might have a set of rules, just like there is a natural physical law of the universe called gravity, that when you drop things, they fall. There is a law whether you vote on it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you believe in it or not, it is still the case. There is a set of moral laws in this universe declared by the creator 
creator of the universe himself, which is God. When we have something like the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. Have no idols. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. Honor your father and your mother. Do not envy. Do not uh, cheat others. Don't steal from people. Don't commit adultery. The, t- the commandments of God are some of God's moral code designed like the law of gravity to show you when you violate the law of gravity, you may think you're violating it. It's just a matter of time. D- depending on the size of your skyscraper, if you jump off of a skyscraper and you think, look, I jumped off, nothing happened. There's no wage to jumping off the skyscraper. The wages of gravity is not death for me, to which we'll, all of us would say, just give it a minute because wait a second, the law is going to play its course. The wages of pride is death. Well, I haven't died yet. The key word in that sentence is yet. The original lie that humans believed was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were told by God not to eat a forbidden fruit. And the tempter, Satan, the devil, comes to them and says, come and eat this. And they say, no, we we can't eat that because we'll die. The wages of eating that is death, to which the original lie that entered the human race was actually this. The wages of sin is not death. You will not surely die. What I'm telling you is that God in his goodness has let us know you're not meant to jump off of skyscrapers and you don't thrive in adultery and you don't thrive in deception and you don't thrive in pride and you don't thrive in lust. That's not how you thrive. When you're living a life like that, you're living a life in your own hands and you may say, well, I haven't died yet. No, I get that. What I'm saying is there's a reality that you need to understand that the cross was God's means of God coming down and realizing that humans had racked up debts, that there was an indebtedness that we had. One of the metaphors of what happens when we sin is that there's a debt, a legal debt that we owe. There's a, there's a problem. There's a disease. There's, a, there's something that's going to come and ultimately kill us. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Someone had to pay the death price. It will either be you or someone else. If you go to Texas Roadhouse after church today and you go eat a bunch of food, someone's paying the bill. Someone may bless you and pay it for you, but if they don't, it's going to be you. When you live your life and you breathe your last and you show up before the ultimate cashier called the judgment day of God, someone is going to pay the price for the sins and the debts that have been racked up. If it was not Jesus, it will be you. This little boy, he was eight years old. He had a sister dying of leukemia. And she had a rare blood type, and so they were having a hard time doing blood transfusions, and they finally decided to test the boy. And they they asked the the little eight-year-old boy if he would get tested. He did, and sure enough, his blood type was the same rare blood type as his sister, who was dying. They asked him, would you be willing to give a pint of your blood for your sister? He said, can I think about it? because he was pretty scared to give a pint of his blood. So he slept on it, and we woke up the next morning. He sort of comes trembling to his parents, and he says, Mom, Dad, I, I decided I, I will give my sister my blood. So he did. They take him into the hospital to put him on a gurney. He's there next to his sister. They're taking his blood. They're giving her blood. And, 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 and you could tell he's sort of shaken up, but there's a measure of peace that he has. But the doctor finally comes over and says, Son, how, how are you doing? How are you doing, big guy? And he looks up, a little tear coming down his cheek. He says, I just have a question. How soon before I start to die? And that's when they realize he thought he was given his life. See, when Jesus came, he wasn't just giving a pint of his blood. Jesus was giving his life. If the wages of sin is death, 
And Jesus himself, God himself, is the way and the truth and the life. If, if that's who he is, if the wage of sin is death, it stands to reason to make the penalty payment for sin. There's going to have to be a shedding of blood and there will have to be a death, which means you'd have to be alive. Do you understand that when Jesus comes, born of a virgin, comes and lives this very real physical life, this is God himself who's able to do anything, becoming human like us, becoming killable, becoming dieable, becoming able to somehow be What I'm letting you know is when he was on that cross, he was forgiving our sins, wiping out the things against us. Blessed be his name. Gaylord Cambarambi was a general secretary of the Bible Society in the continent of Africa, and he was out passing out some little Bibles, if you've ever seen like the little New Testament Bibles that you give people. Here you go, would you like one of these, would you like one of these? And he was handing out some of these scriptures. And he comes up to one guy, he says, hey, don't even bother, preacher, don't give me one of those. I don't want that. He says, all I do is smoke. He says, uh, you give me one of those little Bibles, I'll rip the page out and I'll smoke it before your eyes. I'll take out one of those pages, I'll pump it with my stuff, and I'll smoke it. He says, well, go ahead, do me a favor. Go ahead, I'm gonna give it to you anyway, and I'm gonna pray that you read this. Before you smoke a page, read the page. He says, fine, give it to me. So he gives it to him. 15 years passed, there's a conference going on across the continent, and this Gaylord Cambarambi is there, and he's at this conference, he sees a man coming from the distance, walking toward him, and he looks familiar, but he can't quite put his finger. He says, you remember me? He says, how do I know you? He says, I'm the guy. Do you remember you, you gave me a Bible? He'd given a lot of Bible. He says, I'm the guy that said I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smoke it. He said, oh, well, what, what, what happened to you? He says, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist. I go preach all across the continent now about Jesus. <laughs> he said, well, how did that happen? He said, well, let me tell you what happened. I took out that Bible, and I started smoking my way through Matthew. And then I started smoking my way through Mark. He said, I was smoking my way through John, and I got to John chapter 3, when it said, God so loved me that he gave himself for me, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. And I couldn't escape the God who had loved me, and I got on my knees, and I crossed that line. I said, Jesus... You can have my life, and he changed my life, and here I am 15 years later. I want to go tell everybody, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All I boast about is the cross of Jesus because it was on that cross. Do you, friends, some of you that even to this very moment you're guilty, I need you to understand everything you needed to be done to be forgiven was done by Jesus on the cross. Everything you needed undone to be forgiven has been undone by Jesus on the cross. There is a reason Paul would say, I only boast in one thing, the cross. This is what represents everything that you need, all the life, the cross. This symbol of destruction and despair and hopelessness has become something completely different because everything Jesus touches comes alive. Every Everything Jesus gets his hands on comes alive. Let him get his hands on you. Everything, even a death stake. See, it's interesting to me what, what, what happens on this cross is that there's a, there's a forgiveness that takes place where the Bible says you can know that your sins are forgiven. There are some of you in here that are such, there's some of you that are good people 
Some of you are gracious people and kind people, but you don't know that you have eternal life. The scriptures are actually written that you can know that you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. That's why, that's why Jesus did this. That's why Jesus came. Number one, why, why does this do something life-giving? Because it was God, number two, forgiving our sin, but number three, setting us free. In verse 15, it says, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, let me try to paint the picture, and God, I ask for your help on this. When Roman generals would go out to battle, they would come back, and often they would come back, hopefully if they came back triumphant, they, would have a, they had a triumphal. They had a triumphal entry. They would come back to a crowd like this, might be gathered in a coliseum. They might be gathered out in the streets. They would come back, and when they saw their general, he'd raise his hands, and they would all cheer because he had, they would say, good news, we have won. The good news is we've won. You are now free. And part of the evidence of that was that behind them would be a processional of prisoners of war that were chained together, weary, battered, bruised, bloodied, and they'd all be kind of chained together, making their way in to the Colosseum or to the crowd. And as they did, this was a public spectacle of shame. They would bring in the POWs. This was part of the evidence that the king had secured the victory, that the general had secured the victory, and part of it was the blood sport, part of it was the, the mocking, and part of the beauty of it, or the fun of it, was all these people get to look down on all of these. Now, here's the catch. If you were in the processional, chained to some chains, chained to other criminals, bleeding and battered and weeping, what you're doing in that moment is you're going to one of two places. You will either be killed, or you will be enslaved. You're either gonna be beheaded, or you're going to become a slave, and you're going to have to serve this nation of what you were not born into. Either way, it's a horrible life. What the Bible says, and what Paul was alluding to when Jesus died on the cross, what he's saying is, I know it looked like Jesus was the one that was on spectacle. I know it looked like Jesus was the prisoner of war. I know it looked like Jesus was defeated. I know it looked like Jesus was weak. I know it looked like Jesus had nothing going on. And many of us, I've even talked to friends of mine that I've met from other faiths that would say, I have a hard time with Christianity because I cannot believe that God would allow a prophet to die in such defeat. That is why you need to know what today is, which is Easter, because the message of Easter is this. By 5 or 6 o'clock on Good Friday in 33 AD, Jesus did something on a cross that was so sufficient, so thorough, so overwhelmingly otherworldly that literally he gets up and says these words on the cross, tetelestai, which was Greek words that meant it is finished. Can we say that together? It is finished. Can we say it one more time? It is finished, which means everything that would have ever been against you had been undone, and anything that you ever needed had been done, so that when Jesus goes on the cross, you may feel like you were cursed, but the scripture says cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse, took the curse, so that now there is no more curse for you when you put your faith in him. You are now not cursed. Now you are blessed. You would have been unforgiven, now you're forgiven. You would have been an orphan, now you become a child of God. You would have been a nothing, you would have been a nobody, you would have been a prisoner of war. Now you become a daughter or son of the Most High God, given a blessing, given an eternal inheritance in heaven forever and ever because of what Jesus did on the cross when he said, it is. Now, let me, let me break this down a little more clearly. 
I love studying the Old Testament temple and tabernacle because that was the place where humans got right with God. That was the place where a priest would go and take an animal's blood and, and put it in the right place and, and there was an atonement for sin. There was a blood sacrifice that was made. In the temple, you would find that there were multiple pieces of furniture in the temple. What's interesting is there was one piece of furniture you would not find in the temple. And again, the priest would go into the temple to make atonement between humans and God, that the priest would go in and, and get things right with humans at least for another year, at least for a little while. What you would find is that in the temple there were multiple pieces of furniture. There was a candelabra, there was a, a, a table of showbread, different places. What you would not find in the temple was what you're sitting on right now, a chair. Because from the moment the priest went into the temple till the moment the priest left the temple, there was always something to do because sinners like us are in need of constant help. What's fascinating is that when Jesus went up on the cross, the scripture describes that he is our great high priest. And then when he went up to that place, to that holy mountain, which was, by the way, the same mountain where Abraham was with his son Isaac. It was the, the same area, this same geographical look at the same zip code where so many other things had happened. When his blood was shed, Something happened on that cross, in that place, on that mountain, whereby sins were wiped out. He became the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He became the great scapegoat. He became the great ram that the, that the priest would sacrifice for many, many years to, before that. And he goes now and sheds his blood. And when he does, it says he dies. He says it is finished. He dies on that cross. He gets buried physically. On the third day, on Sunday, he rises from the dead, meets with his disciples, but ultimately ascends into heaven. And when he gets to heaven, do you know what he does when he gets to heaven? He sits down. Why? Because it was finished. I, I need you understanding this. This means when you come to Jesus, you don't have to come and come and come and come and come and keep going and keep going. And keep. You come to Jesus once and for all. Jesus shed his blood, made the sacrifices. Priests would go sacrifice animals year after year after year because no blood, no bull, no lamb could really take away sins. But when Jesus went upon the cross, this was not just a bull. This was not just a lamb. This was not just a man. This was God who was a man that went upon a cross. He did did not deserve. And when he said it is finished, it's because it really, really was finished. Which means not only do you need forgiveness of your sins of your past, when you come out of slavery, you still need to live. That's why the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. That means this cross wipes out your sins, takes away your debts, wipes out the curses. This even deals, some of you need peace today. I want you to know, you can have peace because of what happened on that tree. It's not just a cross. It's not just a piece of wood. It's the one who went up on there because everything Jesus gets his hands on comes alive. Every life Jesus gets a hold of comes alive. Every career that Jesus gets his hands on comes alive. Every job, every workplace, every church, every microchurch, every situation that Jesus gets his hands on comes alive 
Here, this is the application of this whole sermon today. Whatever you've got, give it to Jesus. Get his hands on it. The Bible says little children would be brought to him. They just wanted him to lay his hands on them. You want Jesus laying his hands on you. Because everything Jesus gets his hands on comes alive. There was a wedding in Jesus' day. It's the very first miracle he ever did. There was a wedding. They ended up having too many people. They, today, we've run out of space a little bit. But the, on, on that day, they ran out of wine. <laughs> but they invited Jesus. Inviting Jesus was the best decision they ever made at that wedding. Because he turned water into wine and got enough wine for the whole group. And there's another time. There was a little house party going on. And there was a crippled man that gets brought in, gets lowered in from upstairs. And Jesus was there in the middle of a typical house party and this crippled man that could not walk was touched by Jesus, healed by Jesus, and he gets up and he walks out of there. There was a woman that was caught in the act of adultery, face down on the ground, deserving, scripture said, of being stoned along with whatever man she was with who was not there conveniently. And Jesus gets down there in the dirt with her, lays his hands on that situation, turns away her accusers, saves her life, says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Because everything Jesus gets his hands on comes alive. Ultimately, Jesus goes on a cross where he even tastes death itself. And friends, I need you to catch this. I, I, want, I, I, I was curious for years, why did Jesus say it is finished on Friday when he didn't rise from the dead until Sunday? And that's when I finally realized, do you understand that the payment that needed to be paid was paid by Friday? By the time Jesus, all Jesus had left to do was get his hands on death because once his hands were on death, he was gonna undo it. There is nothing he cannot do. There is no sickness he cannot heal. talking to a, a friend before service. He was, he was just texting me, and he said, hey, I really think you need to pray about something. I, I was meeting with a guy over here, Saeed. I don't know if you're in the house right now, but he was over here on, on Wednesday after prayer. He says a couple weeks ago, he was actually online watching church online. He said, you just stopped and you prayed for some sicknesses in the name of Jesus. This, this, just, this was just on Wednesday, hearing this story. He says, I, he had an accident, and there was just a horrible back situation, has this, had this accident, has not had a normal life, and it's just been a terrible time. And he says, I'm sitting there watching on my computer at home. I reach back, touch my back, and say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. I get up, and he looks at me, he says, Pastor Mike, I got my life back, and Jesus healed me. One of the brothers, he said, hey, I just, I was praying this morning. He said, someone with right-sided back pain has been bothering you for years. I don't know who that is. I don't know if there's someone with right-sided back pain. I also felt like right before this service that people just tormented with headaches, like ongoing, lingering headaches. If you've either had right-sided back pain or lingering headaches, even if you're watching this video a month from now or a year from now, hear these words. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of who Jesus is and the love he has for you, be healed in his name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Maybe you need to touch your back and say, I received that in Jesus' name. Maybe you need to touch your head and say, I received that freedom, that liberation. Someone that's maybe been trying to get pregnant, you've been unable to get pregnant, hear this in faith. May you receive power to conceive, have a child, and then when you have that child, give that child to Jesus because everything Jesus gets his hands on comes alive. Everything. Make the cross your ultimate spectacle. Make Jesus your ultimate boast. 
Make the gospel your ultimate joy. There are some of you that have never heard this today. I'm praying that maybe you've got a lot more questions. We'd be happy to answer those. But there's some of you that have known this for a long time, but your joy has gotten dull. And if it has, I can promise you, you've been boasting in something besides the cross. Maybe today's your day to say, wait a minute, I only boast in one thing, Jesus. Let me just pull it to a close. I really like playing tennis. I'm not very good, but I like playing tennis. And if you give me a tennis racket, I mean, you're going to get, a, I don't know, a couple of hours of fun out of me. That's what you're going to get. Because <laughs> I'm not that good. But if you put a tennis racket in the hands of Serena Williams, you're going to have more championships than any woman has ever won in the history of women's tennis because that woman is the greatest of all time. She's the GOAT. And there's going to be movies made about her, and there's going to be stories told about her because it all depends on whose hands you put the tennis racket in. If you put a basketball in my hands, you got some, some bouncing fun with younger kids because <laughs> I'm just not that good. But you put a basketball in the hands of Steph Curry? <laughs> it was only women that said that just now. <laughs> you put a basketball in the hands of Steph Curry and you're dropping three-pointers from other counties. Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. You put a football in my hands, a man in my 40s. We're, we're playing catch in the backyard because I'm way past that. But you put a football in the hands of Tom Brady? <laughs> More women. <laughs> you put a football in the hands of Tom Brady and a man in his 40s, the Bucks might win another Super Bowl as he just came out of retirement for the fifth time or whatever. Because it all depends on whose hands you put the football in. If you put some... some string and some materials into my hands. I don't know, I'm playing, I'm making crafts with my children. But you put some string and some filament in the hands of Thomas Edison and you've got the invention of a light bulb. Because it all depends on whose hands you put it in. You put a peanut in my hands, you got a snack at a gator game. <laughs> but you put a peanut in the hands of George Washington Carver? You've got like one invention after another and shoe polish and, I mean, unlocking the secrets of the great peanut because it all depends on whose hands that you put it in. And if you put a hammer and nail in my hands, give me a piece of wood, I might be able to build you a birdhouse because I'm really, really not good. But you put a hammer and nails in the hands of Jesus, and you've got the salvation of the world. Redemption for those who do not deserve it. Forgiveness of sins. Adoption as children. Granting of an inheritance. Purpose and calling and hope and a future. Because it all depends on whose hands you put it in. Everything you put in the hands of Jesus comes alive. Everything. That secret you've been holding on to. You don't need to tell me. You got to tell him. Because everything you bring to Jesus comes alive. Everything. I was reading the story of the prodigal son, and when I was in seminary, I remember we were just studying all these different cultures, and the story goes that Jesus tells the story of a, of a young son that says to his dad, basically, I wish you were dead. 
give me my inheritance right now. Wealthy, dignified man. He says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. It's a shameful thing. No one would ever ask such a thing in ancient Eastern, Middle Eastern cultures, but the father does it anyway. He loves his son so much he does it. The son goes off, squanders all of his possessions in wild living and sinful living. When a famine comes, he hits rock bottom and he starts thinking to himself, man, I'm about to die here. He was feeding some pigs, some unclean animals, swine, and starts to make his way back to his father and says, I'd be better off going back to my dad. I could at least become a slave in his house. And there's this little detail that I've never heard Americans find interesting, but, but other cultures do. As the son comes back, the father sees him a long way off. And when the father sees him, his heart was moved with compassion. And the scripture says he began to run. He ran to his son. Now, for you or me, that's not a big deal because people run. We see men run in sport. We see running. But in Middle East 2,000 years ago, for a man wearing a robe to run, the only way you do it is you'd have to lift up your skirts. You would lift up your robes. You would expose yourself, and you would begin to run. To which the question is, why would the father be running? And the answer is, it's the scripture that we're reading today. The public spectacle, the public spectacle, the public spectacle. It's not just that the father couldn't wait any longer. The father's been waiting for months or years for his son to come home. The answer is, the son who's making his way back is a son of shame. This son deserves death. This son deserves scorning. This son deserves everything he would have gotten from the crowd as he made his way back like a prisoner of war coming back from battle, bleeding and battered, wounded and bruised, humbled and humiliated in the sight of all. When they would have been watching him, all of them would have been thinking, darn right got what you deserve. You're finally getting what you deserve. Some people might, little kids might have taken pebbles and thrown them at him. People might have, shame, shame, shame on you. And the idea is when the father sees the son as this object, the spectacle of shame making his way back, he takes matters into his own hands. He exposes himself in a scene where the only thing more shameful or pathetic than a prodigal son who has squandered all the possessions would be a pitiful father who wants him so badly he would run and expose himself. No man would expose himself. No man would show his legs like that. No man. Have you no dignity? Have you no shame? I want you to catch this. The spectacle goes from the son to the father as the onlooking crowd is, is wondering why would a dignified man like this become that? Why would he lower himself to that? But Jesus was preaching the gospel because this is the good news. God himself knew that Mike Pats deserved the public spectacle and shame of a cross. If you knew my sins, I would be so humiliated in front of you. If you knew my darkness, I would be so embarrassed. I wouldn't want to show my face. But what did he do? He went up on a cross where he exposed himself. The shame, the attention all of us should have gotten, the, 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 the scorn, the spectacle, we should have been. He becomes the spectacle, so we never have to become the spectacle. He pays for the sins, so we don't have to pay. What we have to do is receive it. What we have to do is respond and say yes. And if you've never responded and said yes, I'm calling you today to say yes. Here's my final thought. A couple weeks ago, the oldest member of our church, Bud Taylor, he's in his 90s. He came, we were having lunch after church service, and he said, Pastor Mike, have I ever told you my testimony? I said, no. 
I was 11 years old. My mom was trying to get me to go to church. I didn't want to go. I said, Mom, let me stay home. She said, oh, no, buddy, you need, buddy, you need to come to church. She said, I don't want to go to church. She finally said, okay, you can stay home, but you got to stay with your sister. I stayed home with my sister. My mom left to go to church. She closes the door one Sunday night. When my sister was there, my sister was an evangelist, he said. As soon as the door shut, she turned to me. She walks over to me, and she drew this imaginary line in the carpet of their house. And she said, buddy, this is the Lord's side. That is not whose side are you going to be on? And she proceeded to preach to me the gospel where she let me know the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Come. Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He has overlooked men's ignorance in times past, but now he commands men everywhere to repent. People everywhere are called to turn, trust in him and believe with all. Buddy, what are you going to do? There's a line in the ground. There's a line in the carpet. What side are you going to? He said, Pastor Mike, it was the hardest thing I ever, I was trembling at the thought. One day, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. She said, buddy, he is the Lord, but is he your Lord? He has wiped out our sins, but have you received that free gift? Because you've got to receive it. Buddy, what are you going to do? And he said, Pastor Mike, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do to cross that line. But I finally stepped out, moved, and I walked across that line. And on that day, I said, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are my king. Wipe away my sins. And he said, it was like the burden of my sins was lifted. And I felt so light. And there's someone here that's supposed to get forgiven today, freed today, changed today, transformed today, redeemed today. And I invite you to do it, but you need to respond.